0: Ballot measures don't tell us anything about what voters really want.
1: Welcome to This Week in Common Sense, starring Paul Jacob. My name is Timothy Verkula, and this weekend, Paul and I will be talking about the stories that have appeared on ThisIsCommonSense.org for the first week of December 2020.
0: The term gaslighting, where people say stuff that's not so and make other people crazy because they're not sure what reality is since uh, people are pretending that unrealities are realities. But our Monday commentary, Seeing What's There, was about the intelligentsia, academia, the political class, the experts telling us basically that what's right before our eyes is not, is not really there. Um, and what I mean by that is that there was a piece by uh, Sasha Eisenberg, uh, who is a journalist, a uh, professor of uh, political science at UCLA, um, and an author, and a liberal. Uh, progressive guy who looks at all the ballot measures around the country, and one of the things that we here at ThisIsCommonSense.org uh, have been talking about since the election is the numerous ballot measures, Prop 16 in California, where are arguably the most racist, anti-racist, uh, obsessed state, uh, uh, very blue votes. Even though the spending is 20 to 1 in favor of Prop 16, which would restore affirmative action, put racial preferences back into force, uh, it's defeated soundly, 56-44, even the wildly outspent. And It's interesting that in this piece, uh, Sasha Eisenberg is basically making the case that we can't really pay any attention to what voters voted on directly in terms of policies. Because there's too much spending and it's not equal enough and so on. And he points out that you would never see these sort of lopsided spending situations in candidate races. And of course, you know, I suspect some people just read that and just kind of go on. But I read that and I thought, you've got to be kidding Because, of course, a lot of times candidate races are one guy has, you know, a couple million dollars and spends a million of it in running against somebody who has eight hundred and forty three dollars to spend. Uh, So often candidate races are completely lopsided to where you never even hear about the other candidates. And um And it is, I think, problematic sometimes. I've been involved in ballot measures where we're getting outspent. Uh, uh, Usually, you know, if the yes side on ballot measures is spending a lot more than the no side, it doesn't work very well. There was a study years ago done in California looking at, at, I guess, about 10 years of their ballot measures. And they found that if the spending on the yes side is greater than two to one, that the likelihood of losing for every dollar more than two to one goes up not down now why would that be it's not that they're spending money and people say oh i saw them spend money so i'm against it it's that people start to get an inkling that something's up if there's too much spending and there's no rejoinder and uh, so you know, this, this whole push that somehow the ballot measures don't pay any attention seems to me to be very wishful thinking, because some people like this break between the blue team and the red team, and let's make that everything, and, and don't pay attention to what voters really want, but I think that the problem with the red team and the blue team is that they don't pay attention to what voters really want. And so to feed into that and pretend that when voters say directly on affirmative action or on the minimum wage or on any other issue, when they speak directly on that issue, to pretend that, oh, let's not pay attention to what they said. And even in this piece, Eisenberg admits that on minimum wage and other things like marijuana, where the spending was much higher on the yes side, that it would have won anyway because you look at public opinion polls and and obviously people tend to favor those measures before there's a cent spent on advertising one way or the other.
1: Just to clarify, you're talking about your piece on Monday, seeing what's there, and you're talking about an article that appeared in the Washington Post? Yes.
0: Yes seeing what's there is the piece, and the article was in the Washington Post, it was an op-ed that ran over the weekend on Sunday's paper. But I had actually, and this is something the Washington Post likes to do, you read the Sunday paper and you realize you know, half the articles were, were written four or five days ago. But a friend of mine, Joe Matthews, who's uh, involved with the uh, Zocalo Public Square in uh, Los Angeles and uh, has been co-chairman of the Global Forums for Modern Direct Democracy, A guy I very much like and respect, but who's almost always wrong, especially when he disagrees with me. And he sent me this article and, and made the argument that this article speaks to two changes he'd like to see in the initiative process. One is that he'd like to see public funding, and the second is that he'd like to separate the elections where you have candidates on the ballot from the elections where you have issues on the ballot. And boy, I think he's totally wrong on both counts. On public funding, I see it as a, as a, a very severe danger to the initiative process, because if they were to pass public funding, you're basically encouraging people. To come up with an initiative, why not? Someone else is going to pay to do it. So if you're a political person, my goodness, let's think of everything we can possibly think of. And those ideas that are kind of cockamamie, uh, for lack of a better word, boy, that's a good word. um, Those ideas are now funded. So all of the cockamamie ideas make the ballot. The ideas that nobody would give somebody two cents to put on the ballot or help in any way. Don't need your help anymore. The taxpayer is going to help me get it on the ballot. Now you could say, no, 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 we're not going to put them on the ballot, but once the campaign starts, we're going to give both sides equal amount of public funding. Well, if the public doesn't feel equally yes and no, then what you're in essence doing is saying, we're going to put our thumb on the scale to help the minority of people have as much money as the majority and the whole thing gets turned on its head. Plus, the big fear is people are going to lose support for a process that is constantly taking them to the cleaners financially, because they've got to put out more and more money with no justification in their mind. So public funding is a bad idea theoretically, but I think it's also a dangerous idea when it comes to initiatives. Uh, it was a dangerous idea for candidates too, but. But uh, very bad for initiatives. The second idea is I'm not so just automatically opposed to. It's something that you might think about. Well, is there a good reason to separate candidates from issues? And I come down on no, there's not a good reason. And the reason I think there's not a good reason is because I don't want candidates separated from issues in fact that, i think that's one of the problems with our whole system is that candidates just separate themselves from issues you're going to vote for candidate a or candidate b because he's of your tribe because he's not the bad other guy this or that but it's like to to pin these fellas down on what they actually believe and what they're for and against and to speak out on some issues that maybe haven't been raised is in the media and they don't you know don't feel like they have to come out on they won't come out on and so anything that pushes candidates to take stands on issues is good in my mind and so I want them on the same ballots because I want the issues to be useful in tying candidates to a set position and making them live with it Uh, My good friend Grover Norquist says that the the great thing about ballot initiatives is they don't change their mind after the election. Another good thing about ballot initiatives is that sometimes they get enough public attention that they can force candidates to make up their mind and state their position. And then because of the high public recognition, the candidates can't weasel out of it. So um, I think they're. There's always a fear that these issues, wedge issues, will be used to, you know, uh, somehow you know, get involved in candidate races or skew candidate races. Well, that's not a skew. <laughs> that's called public interaction. So often we talk about in, in Washington, we, uh, the, great, the greater we uh, talks about outside groups getting involved in elections, as if these elections belong to the incumbent and the underfunded challenger. And the truth is, these elections belong to all of us. This is a party for everybody to come and show up and have a good time. So there's no outside groups. We're all Americans, we're all in this together, and we all get to have our say. And, And so we want issues to be pushing candidates. We want candidates to be talking about, we got to separate these issues because they're making me uncomfortable. We're glad you're uncomfortable, Mr. Incumbent, and we want to keep pushing those issues. So on both of those, the the answer is no, we want uh, to keep the funding the way it is in terms of not getting taxpayers forced to put money down. And we want to keep these elections where the issues can influence candidates. Um, and and uh, I, I guess in terms of funding, I'm sure there are people out there who would say, "Well, I'm worried about when there's over, you know, one side spending all the money." But it it in candidate races, the person who spends the most money doesn't always win. Oftentimes, an incumbent will spend less and still win. Uh, sometimes a challenger will spend a little bit less and still win. It's important that they get their message out to have a shot, especially candidates because otherwise you, you don't know their name on an issue. You got to vote yes or no. So, you know, you you know what you know, and, and you're going to vote accordingly. Um, but it, it seems to me that when money gets involved and is overwhelmingly on one side or another, The downside to the initiative is a lot of money on the no side can raise concerns and cause people to say, I I just don't know, and maybe they would have been for this, but there's just so much thrown up, so much smoke that they figure there may be fire somewhere that the, the status quo is just a vote no. And so I think, yes, the world's not perfect. There are times where... Voters are apt to vote no when they really would have wanted to vote yes, but there was so much money telling them things that you know weren't weren't quite the way I see it. But that's the harm that we didn't get to change the law. We still got to have another chance next time. Uh, I don't see that as a big harm, and yet I see trying to get involved and create this, you know, and and it just seems to happen again and again. We have. We have such trouble getting government to pick up the trash and take it to the dump. Such trouble in policing, such trouble in all kinds of education, um, the idea that we want some expert, you know, governmental body to be deciding how all the funding should go and how much people should be able to say or not say, and this fear that somehow the big powerful special interests are going to be able to control our ballot and just push into our state constitutions anything they want. and Then you have to kind of step back and say, so so where are these cases? Where are the cases where some powerful special interests from outside the state, as if everybody outside the state is evil, but but where is the case where they spent all this money and they hoodwinked the people of X state, and it was terrible. And you never, you never hear the example. And this year we fought, uh, my group, Citizens in Charge, uh, fought three different ballot measures that were designed to uh, supposedly protect state constitutions from outside special interest spending lots of money. None of the three measures did anything about people spending money, all of them just ratcheted up the process in such a way that the hurdles were higher, more expensive, and would have made it to where, oh no, the big, powerful, well-heeled special interests wouldn't be pushed out of the process. But all the grassroots groups that couldn't possibly spend as much as the teachers union or the chamber of commerce were completely shoved out of the way. In all three cases, we defeated these measures, not because we spent a lot of money, but because we were able to get a message out and because people basically believe in democracy and having a vote. And they like the idea that people can check their legislature. And it it seems to me in this world in which uh, democracy is still, in terms of any sort of fair free process, is still a rarity that... We in the United States have got to embrace this, and we need to hold politicians who refuse to embrace it accountable. And we we need to hold, I think, the entire political class that talks democracy constantly, like the Washington Post uh, motto now is democracy dies in darkness, even while my view is they constantly... Are darkening parts of the information they don't want us to have because they're totally partisan media and media like that hate the initiative process why because it's wide open it's something that the elite doesn't control even though special interests use it they can't at least so far have not been able to stop the grassroots from using it. it's why we have things like term limits still an issue because there was a way to bring it up. It's why conservative states passed medical marijuana, passed recreational uh, legalizing recreational marijuana, because even though their state legislature ideologically said, no, that's not what the red team's for, the people of the state were for it. It's why in California, even though all the blue team experts and elected officials and big powerful interest groups said, we love Prop 16, and we're going to spend a bunch of money on it. But the public said, no, we don't like it. So we, we need this process. We need to use it more. I'm a broken record on that. But it, it's instructive to me to see an article like this in the Washington Post trying to make the case that you shouldn't believe that an open vote on a specific issue Tells us anything about how the people feel about that issue.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it it didn't seem very sophisticated in, uh, you might say, economics terms, you know, public choice terms. They didn't, the article you were talking about didn't really have much there. There was almost no there into the argument. No there, there, as they say.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And it was, you know, I almost thought sometimes you just want to take an article and just go line by line hammering it. But this one, you would go line by line and say, you just made an assertion, you ha- offer no evidence whatsoever, except your kind of highbrow uh, political establishment you know, opinion. And uh, just, I-, I thought it was an incredibly weak piece, um, and-, and cherry-picked, then cherry-picked the different initiatives. But even cherry picking the initiatives where there was too much spending, he comes back later in the piece and admits that two of the issues that he used to say, hey, they're way overspending, that the spending was inconsequential because the public was already wildly in favor of it. And of course, where the public is in favor of something, you would expect more money to be on that side. So it's, there, there is this view that money controls everything. And it's just not true. And every election you see it, but here's maybe the best thing. If money controls everything, then of course Soros controls our political process because of all the money he spends. But of course, Soros can't control our political process because the Kochs control our political process because of all the money they spent. But wait a second, they don't want the same things. And it seems like neither one gets their way. And when they agree, they don't get their way. Money is good People like to spend it. You have to spend money to reach people in a mass, you know, in a country of 330 million people and in states with millions of people. So money is kind of essential. But the idea that somehow we're all a bunch of sheep and if you just show us a commercial four times and the other side only showed us the commercial three, that like a bunch of, you know, zombies, we just moan and come to the polls and you know flip the lever for you it's it's silly and it it is used oftentimes to do all kinds of things to wreck these processes to give bureaucrats and politicians a lot more say so to tilt the playing field to put hurdles in people's ways so um it's uh it's it's Kind of a sign that we're on the right track. That the Washington Post is writing about the initiative in a in a completely ridiculous way, but uh, that's the, that's the good side.
1: Well, I take it you think that is the big story of the week. That is of the ones that you covered on the on the on the page. This is CommonSense.org. That that's probably the one that really uh, you had the most to say about. It's what you're starting with, and, you, and-
0: yes. Well, it was the first one. So maybe I'm starting with it just because I'm going in chronological order. But it, it's also the one that's closest to my heart because that's where I work. Um, I'm working in the initiative process. Not always. I, you know, we've done some other things. We've lobbied legislatures, but it's in and around the initiative process for the most part. And and. You know, the, the, the news doesn't tend to revolve around process. It, it revolves too much around horse race journalism and, and gotcha journalism and all kinds of things. Um, so I think it's incumbent on me, especially, uh, to, to bring up how critical uh, the initiative process is in terms of I- exactly an opposite uh, of, of uh, Eisenberg. It's critical in finding out where people really are, because the fact that they voted for, you know, the Democrat in California or the Republican in Florida, you know, how much does that tell you? Does that tell you how they feel about all these issues? Not nearly as much as it as it tells you when they vote directly on the issue.
1: Well, it's so much cleaner. It's it's to the point. I mean, it's one issue and it's usually a yes or a no. But, you know, when you vote for a person, a candidate. They come with all the baggage. Yes, they have hundreds of positions that, and, and and many allegiances, alliances we don't know anything about, but they're also party people. And so the parties divvy up everybody's feelings of, like you say, the tribes. And uh, and then we get people, you know, I mean, our main candidates these days are, on the national level, are just goofy. I mean, there's a goofy element to Donald Trump. Everybody recognizes that. But now there, it looks like likely Biden is going to become the next president. Uh, even though he said that he might fake an illness and resign. You saw that this week, right? <laughs> I'll,
0: I'll, I'll, I'll develop some disease and say I have to resign. I think that was only if he was vice president. But, of course, he may still think he's vice president, or he may think he's in the Senate. It's not It's not clear. And, of course, I think, uh, I've thought all along, Biden's going to be the next president. It's Trump could show all kinds of fraud unless you can literally show the ballot and throw it out. Um, I mean, it's, it's you can show fraudulent activity, but not be able to quantify it. There's there's uh, the the bar is so high to change, I think, any of the, the vote totals that I've never had any confidence that and, and I'm not saying there wasn't fraud. I'm not convinced that there was enough fraud that it made the difference, but I think, you know, it's interesting, it's, it's like a lot of things, we have two sides, one saying that everything kind of is fraudulent in an overwhelming way, and they got to bring the proof. And then the other side who wants to say there's no fraud, there's no absolutely no fraud, there's no reason to even think about it or talk about it. And of course, I think the truth's somewhere in the middle. But, but I do think those of us who care about, you know, the future political freedom we enjoy in America have to uh, start thinking about how we deal with the Biden presidency and what, that, what we do next after that,
1: because I, I don't see any other way. On the second, uh, you wrote uh, The Return of the Imperialists, which is a, you know, basically about the kind of people that Biden is selecting for his cabinet. And that shows that a lot goes along with one candidate. And we know who those people are.
0: Well, it's it's interesting that uh, I I think you wouldn't find a whole lot of difference between the national security state, foreign policy, State Department folks, the military folks, between Joe Biden and George W. Bush, or Bill Clinton, or Obama. Um, And of course, it, it probably was the one place where Trump really had the most problems in terms of, hey, let's get out of Afghanistan. <laughs> and the answer is, you may be the, the commander in chief, but no. Or let's get out of uh, uh, Syria. And then, of course, there was, uh, and I, I thought about doing a commentary on it, and I might still do something on it, but uh, there, there was a, uh, a State Department guy who basically was saying that, the military, in all kinds of ways, had had, uh, and maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it was a it was a Pentagon guy who had said that they basically had a lot more people in Syria than they had admitted, and made it seem that they were trying to put one over on the commander in chief, which is, you know, not I don't think legal. I think it's called fraud and you could even, you know, kind of without maybe even being hyperbolic call it treason. Um, That's not, you know, you're not allowed to send troops places that the commander in chief says don't send them. And uh, so, you know, we, we have a a lot to fear with a restoration of the role of world policemen without any sense that we don't want to intervene everywhere. And then of course, on the flip side, the one place where I feel like we really have to be tough is when it comes to China. And I see Trump as the first president to step up and not basically, uh, you know, fluff uh, Xi Jinping's pillow and do his laundry. And, uh, you know, it just seems to me that that we have a lot of danger in restoring the role of rural policeman without being tough in the one place where freedom for millions of people <clears throat> could be at stake, and not just in Taiwan, but in in the greater region, but especially in Taiwan, which is constantly threatened. I have a free Hong Kong shirt on today, and of course this week Joshua Wong and two others in Hong Kong pled guilty to the horrendous crime of going to a rally and speaking out publicly. Which is should be every person's right, but but which in China is a is a terrible evil crime, Uh, and you know it's it's as I think I said last week or the week before when we were talking about it that um, you know it's hard to see how we can do anything to save the people of Hong Kong from the fate of being totalitarianized by the Chinazis, and uh, as they call them, and uh, and I do too now. And uh, and, you know, that's tough, but it it's like someday, hopefully we can change China. We can you know, China will be free and then Hong Kong would be free, too. But I made the point that, you know, I, every time I think about the last year and the protests in Hong Kong, I feel like these it's like the Alamo. They stood up and did something to buy the rest of us time and to send a message about freedom and the threat Uh, and they did it with their bodies and their lives and you know because the future of their lives is is going to be changed because you know they protested and the camera caught them or they were arrested or what have you. And so uh, this is serious serious stuff um, for them and for us and it's you know uh, I just Hats off to the to people in Hong Kong and what they've done over this last year. And it's just uh, going to be, I think, constantly sad, you know, to read piece after piece. And, and I think there are still people who say, oh, it's not looking good there. Well, look, it's over there for the most part, in the sense that China has fully taken over Hong Kong. They were supposed to wait to totalitarianize the city um, until 2047. They couldn't wait. And the reason they couldn't wait is because the people of Hong Kong constantly demanded real freedom and real democratic control of their government. And the elections last December, about this time in Hong Kong, where they were all for local offices, didn't have a lot of power, but a whole bunch of people came out of the woodwork. To run for office for the first time ever, you had 25-year-old kids running for the first time ever as part of a pro-democracy group against powerful incumbents who had been elected and re-elected. The pro-democracy people smashed the establishment in Hong Kong, literally 80—they went from zero seats to 87 percent of the seats. It's not close. And, of course, leading up to this vote a year ago, you had all kinds of people talking about how maybe the people of Hong Kong, you know, you'd hear different horror stories of, oh, the protester did this, they lit the one guy on fire and you saw the film of them lighting his his chest or something. And, of course, you never heard what happened to this guy. I've continually pointed this out. You never hear what happened. Was he burned? Seriously? Tell us how terrible it was. I'm convinced this never happened in real life. It was a complete ruse. And anyway, to make a long story short, whatever terrible things the protester did, the people who live in Hong Kong and vote in Hong Kong voted 87 to 13 percent. And really not just 13, because there were a few other people probably in there, but overwhelmingly like 90 to 10 in favor of a more democratic future. So. You know the the folks in Beijing know what's up, and they know there's no amount of jawboning and pleading they can do. And the people of Hong Kong know what's up. They know that they're dealing with totalitarians, and they knew that they had to fight. and uh, And I have a ton of respect for them. And it just seems like the least we could do is to not pretend that Xi Jinping is you know a nice guy. Or that the China, I mean, we've had so many people like Bloomberg, you know, before he ran for president, had to kind of back off of it, telling people that Xi Jinping has to, you know, has to um, please his own constituency. And then and then he clearly was alluding to 1.4, 1.5 billion Chinese, when in reality, when he's pushed on it, he has to admit, well, he has to placate the 25 member Politburo which, of course, even itself is a joke. He doesn't have to placate the 25-member Politburo. If someone on that Politburo decides they want to take Xi Jinping out, they're going to end up in some prison. There'll be somebody else on that Politburo. So the whole thing is is it it's sad for us to have leaders and people who want to be leaders who are going to, you know, Kind of do a little tap dance and pretend that China is just a, a friendly country, they're they're fine folks, It's what Joe Biden said. Now I have to say, I am at least cautiously optimistic that we can put enough pressure on Biden and that administration, and that they will look bad enough that they will not immediately return to a, let's deal with China, whatever they want. Lord knows if they want to, you know, commit genocide, we might need a vote as part of the Paris climate talks or something. You know, I don't think we're going to go back to that kind of silliness anytime soon because of the political reality and the fact that the public is very much concerned about China and uh, whether, whether the, the Biden camp is or not. But it's, it is a bad sign that basically everybody is picked, uh, are the type that, you know, intervening in Libya and overthrowing Gaddafi and leaving just a mess there, oh, that's fine, intervening in Yemen or Syria or, or where, where have you, um, they're the same old hacks. They're, uh, they're neocons, uh, but uh, progressive
1: neocons. Yeah, I think we just used to call them neoliberals. Remember yes. when neoliberal was a, a thing that it didn't mean the five things it means now? But back at, <laughs> back in the back in the early eighties, I believe they were calling, you know, uh, James Farrell and others neoliberals. They were the the tech the techie type types of uh, interventionists, you know, smart and, interventionists. Yes,
0: yes. Wasn't wasn't Clinton kind of a uh yeah. neoliberal in that, you know, uh he certainly came off that way. Well, that this is something that uh I, I continually push with people my concern that, that we are facing a future where potentially China is leading the world order, which means it's a world in which people are not free to speak. And that's not what I want. I don't think that's what anybody wants. Uh who who isn't isn't gonna you know well, who's a decent human being. And uh so you know, we'll continue to be talking about that, but that's something I think we really have to watch because it's so easy to return to business as usual, and business as usual is to turn away and not see what China's doing.
1: So, Well, one of the things China's doing it has been to pressure many of our companies and, and maybe the Democratic Party, I don't know to what extent, uh, to be less free speech oriented. I mean, we have your, your piece on... Tuesday, Google gag reflex, was about uh, Google crackdowning, uh, crack, <laughs> Google suppressing a video by Tom Woods about the COVID, and your piece on Friday was more about COVID, and it's it's right. on the issue of the, the pandemic that surely we're, we're going to see the most immediate free speech effects. I think in this country, right?
0: Yes. No. I think that's a great point. Um, and it's and Google this was a YouTube thing, but of course the head of YouTube, which is owned by Google, months ago, many months ago, one of the most outrageous things said during this whole pandemic, and let's face it, there's a lot of outrageous things said, said that basically any comment on the pandemic and the virus that wasn't, wasn't in line with World Health Organization you know, statements would be taken down. I mean, that's insane. Um, and anyway, it's this sort of attack on free speech is, you know, something that China's doing all over the place. In fact, Right now, and, and I don't know how much it's covered in the U.S., I mean, I'm reading stuff about it all the time because I'm interested in it, but I don't see much in the Washington Post or New York Times or on on uh, the networks uh, in terms of television news about the fact that there is a huge trade war between China and Australia. And I think part of the, you know, it's kind of a shame people didn't hear more about it because I think so often when it comes to the virus there has been an effort in the u.s media to make it seem like america's the only place that's having any trouble we're having the worst time with it everyone else is dealing with it just fine that's not at all true and i think they've tried to make it seem as if uh you know the the
1: um i'm gonna lose my train of thought on uh well were you going to talk about uh trying to make China look like the one that did it best? Oh, yes, yes.
0: The The other thing is they did. They did indeed try to make it seem like China was doing the best job. And, of course, if you talk to the World Health Organization, they'll pretend that Taiwan's wonderful track record with COVID is really part of China, and therefore it's China's benefit, even though China's doing everything they can to undermine Taiwan, and Taiwan is... Working as hard as they can to not be invadable, since China keeps threatening military invasion. Um, no, it, it. We have a a situation where our media and our high tech sector uh, is doing, you know, a, a bang up job in blocking speech, so it doesn't have to be our government that's blocking speech for speech to still be censored and diminished. And we could use a different word than censored, it's not the government, but our speech is being diminished. And this, you know, one talk by Tom Woods being blocked, that's insane. That, I mean, we really live in a, in a regime in which we can't afford for someone to say something without everything falling apart. I mean, what's the justification for these sorts of controls. It's completely outrageous. Um, and and it, it, it is also built, I think, to jump to, to Friday's script, it's built into this whole, don't question, just do as you're told, it's an emergency, therefore, the authorities must, you know, in essence that our country should act like China. And we should just, the authorities should take over and do whatever they feel like. And I've questioned from day one is we have numerous times in a number of different ways. What authority does the governor or does any of these people, the mayor of New York or whatever city have to tell people they have to shut down their business? Where In what state constitution or federal constitution are the, the right to religious to go to a religious service. I mean, you have a right of free association. You have a right to, re- to, you know, practice your religion. On all of these things, the we have, in essence, as a society with some resistance, thank God, but as a society have decided that, oh, well, if there's a, a disease going around, if there's a virus ever, well, then the Bill of Rights gets thrown out the window. All freedoms are just nullified. And you know this has gone on now for a while. Um, what we're finding is that again and again, it's not stopping the virus. All the lockdowns haven't haven't worked so far. I mean, it's not as if we didn't lock down and now it's surging. And of course, you know, if if some place like Sweden has some surges, oh, it's big news and it means what they did didn't work. Well. What do our surges mean? Don't they mean that what we did didn't work? And we did lockdowns and we're we're seeing more of them come. And then what do we see as soon as we start to see the new batch of lockdowns? We see a city council person in Los Angeles say, we need to close down all the restaurants and then leave the council meeting and drive to a restaurant. We see the mayor of Austin, Texas, doing a recording telling people, my goodness, we might have, he might have to shut everything down if people don't voluntarily stay home, stop getting together, don't congregate in numbers bigger than 10 or what have you. And of course, then we discover that he made that tape on a vacation in Mexico, which he took that vacation after his daughter's wedding, where they had 20 people. Now, apparently that wedding, the 20 people were outdoors. And of course, if if it was up to me, the mayor of Austin would be free to do what he wants to do. And the other people who came to his daughter's wedding, whether they do it indoors or outdoors, hey, I think outdoors would be better. That's just me. He should be free to do as he wants. But he's telling other people they can't do this and then doing it. And of course, that that trip to Mexico wasn't just him. wasn't just he and his wife. Well, it was a party of eight. So again, this is well, as we pointed out, it's license. If people only the powerful are free, it's not freedom. It's they have a license to do what they want, and the rest of us are are serfs. And that's. You know, throughout this whole thing, our leaders could have shown some leadership. They could have stepped forward, given us all the information that they could give us, and asked us to do what they think is the best thing to do. And they could have asked their legislatures or city councils to pass any ordinances or laws or constitutional amendments, my goodness, if you needed or charter amendments if you're a city, making new rules that fit to help people save the day, so on and so on. But of course, all of that would be recognizing our inherent rights and recognizing that they work for us, that they're not the king, they're not the big potentate, they are a servant. And and of course, we've, we've seen none of that. Instead, we've seen mandates, we've seen tough talkers. It's, it's, uh, it is basically taking the Chinazi way and making it seem so much of our media, as you pointed out earlier, Tim, uh, seems to like the Chinese approach here. See how great it is to have this technocratic state that is all powerful, but the best response to COVID did not come in China and the truth is, we don't know how many people died in China. Do we think that they they just all of a sudden started telling the truth about something? I think it's obvious if you read any of the different stories, which most of them I've read in foreign press, not in the US, but if you read them, it's obvious. They've hidden all kinds of breakouts of, of the virus, all kinds of deaths, um, and it's becoming increasingly clear that it was a very concerted effort to hide the virus from the rest of the world at the beginning of this uh, pandemic. So it's, that isn't the best way. The best way uh, has been the way that Taiwan went after it. And of course, Taiwan maybe has an advantage over the United States. They might actually trust some of their, some of their elected officials and their government a little bit more. And of course, they'd also been through uh, the SARS situation, which was nothing in the U.S., but was a much more serious uh you know virus in taiwan and china and and hong kong and 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 southeast asia and so you know they had some advantages but their advantages were not a top down dictatorial system it was a system in which there was freedom and uh and it's a better way to go and especially as this you know we've said from the beginning Uh, there's a time factor. You can shut down society for a few weeks, and boy, if they got rid of the virus, it'd probably make sense to do it. But you can't shut it down forever. And even for a few weeks, you have to respect other people's rights and let the vulnerable, as we pointed out in Friday's script, A Tyrant's License, let the vulnerable and those who have, who are sick, you know, Protect themselves, but don't start acting like everyone needs to be locked down all the time. That's that's uh, it's it's a big mistake, and uh, it's it's not been successful in fighting the virus. And um, and I guess the the last thing we should mention before we uh, we uh, end for the day or for the week um, is that it is interesting to me to see the vaccines coming. And I, I have to, you know, as much as I think, uh, you know, Trump would probably grumble that, oh, they've, they've, you know, they've delayed the virus until, you know, I, after that, or the vaccine. They've delayed the vaccine and so on. Uh, you know, no matter what, the, the truth is, it seems like, you know, that just seems so believable to me. And especially this week as Britain... It seems believable that in the U.S. they would slow down the vaccine. I'm not, I, and I'm not saying that they have. I'm just saying that I don't discount that possibility, either by bureaucratic lack of inertia or by political machinations. But it, it seems to me that with Britain jumping out ahead and authorizing the Pfizer uh, vaccine before the U.S. can do it, I read an article uh, the other day, and it mentioned that we have a meeting, the FDA has called a meeting for, for uh, December 10th to discuss it. Well, the article came out on December 2nd, and I take it that this meeting was set up like December 1st or sometime before De- December 2nd. And it just occurs to me, why, why would you wait eight days to have a meeting about a vaccine and whether it's safe or not safe and what the next step should be that is critically important to all these. All we hear about is all the people dying. And of course, we know that it's not that the lethality of this particular virus is not super big, but there are people dying and the numbers add up. So why would you Why would you go? Oh well, geez, my schedule is kind of full, and it sounds like that they have certain rules. They have to wait this long or that long, but it it just seems completely silly that we have a system in which you would have to wait for you know over a week to hold a stupid meeting to say whatever you're going to say, whether you're going to approve it or not approve it. And so the idea was that maybe. Britain was jumping ahead, but it sounds to me like we have a a system that doesn't move as quickly as it could. And um, I I had uh, uh, some pushback on that. People saying, well, seems to me they've moved way too quickly on this vaccine and that they weren't so sure that they wanted to take a vaccine that had been rushed this much. But I don't really see that as pushback in the sense that I don't want to force anybody to take a vaccine that they don't think, works for them, that they're not confident of, let's, let's persuade people to take it. If we can't persuade them to take it, we can't persuade them to take it. We can't just force people to have to take a vaccine they don't wanna take. But it strikes me that that doesn't somehow justify the ridiculous bureaucratic you know, hurdles that have to be jumped over when people's lives are at stake. So it's, it's, uh, it seems to me that we can both have the freedom to decide whether we take the vaccine or not, without having the FDA get in the way. And the fact that Britain can jump ahead and approve this strikes me as, as not Britain, you know, Britain's not exactly known for being wild and crazy guys who just, you know, throw caution to the wind always. I mean, I, I think they're as careful as, as we are. It seems to me that they have a less bureaucratic system. And now is a good time to not let our bureaucracy run the show.
1: Well, okay, I don't know. My my complaint about Britain and the vi- and the vaccine is that there's they're in the works to make it almost mandatory. That is they are going to curtail the ability of people to travel, for instance, or to go into in many locations, public locations without proof of a vaccine. And this is the new regime. That's what that's what our leaders, that's what the really rich people really want. People like Bill Gates. Bill Gates just wants this desperately. Uh, you should look into Bill Gates and what he's been saying. Uh, he is creepy as all get well, out. But anyway. Uh...
0: Well, and, and we've, we've talked before about the, the reset that people talk about and so on. Um, and, and whether it's a reset or whether that's somebody who you know just got concerned that they think there's this coming up, the bottom line is this if we live in a society in which the government isn't able to force stuff into your veins, then we don't have to worry about some reset. They can reset on their own and we can say, you know what? We're not going along with your reset because we're free people and we live in a free country. But it's, uh, again, I wouldn't, I wouldn't argue for we need more FDA inspired delays in coming up with life-saving drugs. We need freedom and we need freedom in terms of how society can respond to this in a dynamic way, instead of a top-down, totalitarian way, And we also need that freedom in terms of, I hope this virus or this virus, this vaccine, kills this virus, gets us to herd, immunity, uh, all those wonderful things. Um, I'm not so sure I wouldn't take it. You know, I'm going to want to read a little bit more before I do. But no matter what, it's got to be a free choice. I mean, we the the solution to this is not for the government to say we now control your bodies and we're going to stick a needle in everybody's arm because we've determined that's the thing to do. And and that's where we are. You're I mean, you're right. I'm not anybody who's afraid of that. You're right to be afraid of it. I'm afraid of it too.
1: Alan Dershowitz has argued for this exactly. He said that you do not have a right not to take a vaccine so there's a lot of pressure from very very uh influential people for yeah. this. in fact i wonder t- what whether trump was pressured into moving towards pushing the vaccine early on in this thing i i uh i think that trump's major error was always listening to fauci and friends too closely and 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 i wonder to the extent to which he I mean, I think he kind of deserved to lose on on this one issue. I think he kind of deserved to lose. We didn't, we, no one deserves Biden and K- Kamala Harris, but, but, uh, but Trump kind of deserved to lose because of his mishandling of that. Not- yes, this, this,
0: it was a tough, you know, this was a pretty tough curveball, and I don't think he handled it so well. And in some ways by not being Trump uh, and not pushing back and listening to the experts and so on. Now, I uh, uh, this week I, there, I saw something on the or saw something I heard something on the radio about Times Person of the Year, and I immediately had my candidate for Times Person of the Year. It's the person who led the most successful response to COVID-19. That's President Tsai Ing-wen no. of Taiwan. And you could instead give, give it to the, the person who, who released the virus, uh, I'm overstating it, I'm uh, maybe hyperbolic, but you could give it to Xi Jinping. He had the most impact, negative, on the most people, uh, both people in China and the rest of the world by China you know, having this virus come from China. And who knows uh, you know, quite how it got there, but we know it got out in part because China was not transparent and honest and, and forthright about it. Um, but the number one vote-getter thus far is Dr. Fauci. And he has been lionized in the, in the media for the most part, but I think he's been really bad. For instance, he just came out recently, and I think I, think I may write something about this for next week. Um, he just came out, to say that schools ought to be opening but where was he you know months ago during the summer I mean because all this information with most of which you know depending on what media get you don't hear a, a whisper about it but the studies are pretty clear that not only are young people not very vulnerable at all I think there were what was the number there were two People below the age of 18 who died of, of this in California, which has had all kinds of deaths from it, uh, this this virus is not deadly. It is less deadly than the flu for people 18 and, and younger. And it also appears that they're not spreading it. So teachers you know, could say, gee, that's great that it's not deadly for the kids. But if I'm at school, I'm going to get it and it might be deadly for me. Well, it turns out that has not been a way that it's been spreading, and it appears from studies that children are not spreading it, uh, as much as it would be spread in all kinds of other ways. So following the science, the schools ought to be open. I think we all know, if we have any political knowledge whatsoever, why the schools are not open. They're not open because one of the most powerful forces in our society are the teachers' unions. And they don't want to work because they're worried about the virus. And and look, I understand that 100%. I think I'd be a little concerned if I had to go into a room with a lot of people, even knowing all the science. But the bottom line is, it's politics that's making that decision, not the science, because the science would have said, open up those schools. And Fauci comes out now to say, hey, this is the way, but where was he? Months ago. He knew the studies months ago. He has played politics, and it just would be a shame to see him get Times Person of the Year. Uh and but of course, I guess it would go the way of a lot of these awards. They just become almost a a a badge of shame. Like if you got that Nobel Peace Prize, I mean, when I was a kid, you get the Nobel Peace Prize, it's like a good thing. Now it's kind of like, oh, well, you, you may be a mass murderer. <laughs> you may have done nothing. Uh, it's, it's just, it's pathetic. And, uh, and if Fauci gets it, it's just, it's sad.
1: Well, uh, the person that I would like to have seen get an award like that, but never did, was somebody you talked about on Thursday, uh, Walter Williams, who died on Wednesday. Yes.
0: Yes, and uh, Walter Williams, I'm kind of, you know, he, he was a George Mason and, uh, and such a key part of that uh, economics department there, uh, and, and uh, I, I shook his hand once, but I never really uh, met him in any, you know, real way. Uh, but the thing I like so much about Walter Williams is that he was an individual, Now, the title of this piece is The Individualist Economist, and that's because uh, uh, Dinesh D'Souza called him an individualist and kind of meaning a a libertarian. Uh, And he was, but he was also his own person and unique, not afraid to say what he thought, not afraid of discrimination against people like him who were black. Uh, He came out of... uh, uh, you know, grew up in welfare and housing project uh, in Philadelphia, and and earned his way to something better, and was very adamant that the solution for people like him, and basically, <laughs> I think he would argue everybody's like him because we're all people, is that if we work hard, and you know that we're going to get ahead. And that if instead of working hard, we politically organize, we're not going to get ahead so much. He always pointed out that, uh, and being Irish, I, I uh, you know, uh, noticed this, he would always point out that the Irish were one of the quickest uh, immigrant, immigrant groups to get organized politically and one of the slowest groups to get ahead economically. And he, he, you know, points out that Asian students who we've talked about in different things as they're being somewhat discriminated against or, you know, now they're there last week. And I may do something on this, too. Uh, there was one uh, place where they decided that uh, Asians are no longer minorities and decided to start grouping Asians with whites so that it, it you know, the, the divide looked bigger. Because if you put Asians with minorities, well, all of a sudden this minority group is doing better than the whites if you want to do everything by race. Walter Williams did not want to do everything by race. He wanted to do everything by the character of an individual. And he was so steadfast in that that I think he just presented such a wonderful example. And, um, and he, uh, he did not suffer fools gladly, And he was not scared to say what he thought. And uh, we owe him a real debt of gratitude.
1: And there we are. First week of December 2020. Good week. Maybe. Well, I like the weather. This has been where I'm at. The weather's okay. That, that's, that's and that's good. Um, yes, but you
0: just wait. In a hundred years, that weather's going to be terrible. I've already seen the models.
1: Okay. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Hundred years from now it'll be raining and miserable.
1: <laughs> you don't need a hundred years. You need just like about ten days, and it's going to be raining and miserable here. That's that is what winters are like where I live. So on behalf of Paul Jacob, thank you for joining us for This Week of Common Sense for the first week of December 2020. My name is Timothy Verkula. You can find me at locofoco.net and workman.com. That's workman with an I, not an O. And you can find Paul on Facebook and MeWe and other places, but mainly go to thisiscommonsense.org. Even uh, this podcast. Go to thisiscommonsense.org for your first time anyway. You can subscribe on podcatchers such as Apples and Googles and Pocketcast and... Stitcher, and others. But it's also on SoundCloud, and you can comment in the file itself on SoundCloud. Where precisely you agree or disagree, you can comment right in the file. You should give it a try on the uh, SoundCloud page for This Week of Common Sense, or as it may be found some places, Common Sense with Paul Jacob. That's his column five days a week at thisiscommonsense.org.